There's a story of four monks who decided to make a retreat together in total silence. And uh, <coughs> on their first time of prayer together in the evening, one of them lit a candle. And a few seconds later, the candle went out. And he said, oh, the candle's gone out. And the second one said, you've just broken the silence. And the third one said, yeah, you've, you've broken the silence too. <laughs> and the fourth one said, I'm the only one who hasn't broken the silence. <laughs> <laughs> so just to, sorry, I trapped you into that. But this is, uh, these are, I was talking about haikus. I haven't seen any haikus yet, maybe. Anyone done any haikus? Oh, good. So those of you who may be a little nervous about launching out into poetry, I'll give you some examples. Perhaps the, world, perhaps the greatest haiku ever written, one of the most famous by Basho, 17th century Japanese poet. Uh, different translations of it, but it's this, this, basically. An old silent pond. A frog jumps into the pond. Splash. Silence again. Or another one. Autumn moonlight. A worm digs silently into the chestnut. Or another one. Everything I touch with tenderness, alas, pricks like a bramble. Or this one. After killing a spider, how lonely I feel in the cold of the night. So, no sermons. Okay? So that the haiku is just like that. It's just precisely what it is. Just exact uh, expression of what you feel. Anyway, you can do sermons as well if you like. But that's that's the that's the the, the gift of the haiku uh, for you and for those who read it is is the the sharing or the reflection or the capturing of this moment of something very particular and exact and concrete. <clears throat> Good. So this is from uh, St. Augustine. God is delight. And those who are faithful are in God. Called home from the noise that is around us to the joy that is silence. Why do we rush around searching for God? 
when he is already here at home with us. If only we would be with God. Return to your own house. Your teacher is within. I've been reading, uh, I keep on forgetting to bring it with me, but I've been reading uh, or rereading the conference, the conference of the birds, uh, Attar, this sort of mystical Sufi poem. When I read this from St. Augustine, which is on his great work on the Trinity, I am often uh, re reminded of, of that, how, how similar Augustine can be at, in passages like this to that mystical sort of exuberance, intoxication that you find in the Sufi, Su Sufi poets. So something we've forgotten in Christian literature, uh, and it's only the mystical literature, I suppose, that reminds us of it. Um, this, this sort of sober intoxication with the experience of God uh, at the heart of the Christian transmission. And somehow or other, we've managed to make of Christianity, in the popular mind anyway, as something that is, in fact, I met somebody recently as an American sort of evan evangel evangelist, evangelical, um, and he said he was brought up uh, in an uh, evangelical bubble. And it was only when he left home and went to university that he realized what the rest of the world thought about people like him, about Christians. And uh, he rattled off this list of, of associations that, that he discovered. And if he said to somebody he was a Christian, they immediately felt he would be homophobic, uh, you know, moralistic, right-wing, um, and a whole list of things. And then the, finally, the worst of all, boring. <laughs> so that was a wake up for him. And uh, so I think uh, it's very important for us to be familiar today if we are, because part of our identity as a Christian, is to witness. And that is embarrassing for many people today. And there's a sort of uh, a fear of, uh, of witnessing, making an un unqualified, simple witness. One always has to qualify it, I suppose. Today, for example, yes, you know, in the same way that today you'll, you'll hear with the word Muslim is usually qualified by moderate Muslim, which is a little insulting if you think about it. Uh, yes, he is a moderate Muslim. Most of them are not moderate, of course, but this one is. But, uh, and Christians often uh, get trapped in this or find themselves trapped in it. I uh, went into a shop, Watkins bookshop in London 
and it has it's a very esoteric uh, bookshop and from, with everything from ancient Egyptians to witchcraft and you know everything but and they have a section a Christian section but it's called esoteric Christianity <laughs> so be like moderate Muslims esoteric Christian Christians are more or less more acceptable so anyway I think it's uh, it may be, be one of the meanings of what Karana said uh, in the last century when that the Christians, Christians of the future will be mystical or they will be no Christians. I think it is, it is vital for us to, to be able to rediscover this, um, this sort of haiku kind of experience present in the Christian tradition. What we've just heard you know, from St. Augustine and uh, which we find throughout the, the, the mystical literature, this um, immediacy and simplicity and joyfulness of the uh, experience of, of God. God is delight, and those who are faithful are in God. Called home from the noise that is around us to the joy that is silence. So yesterday, I was talking about the difference between sound and noise. Noise, whether it is external or, as we'll look at it this morning, more interior, blocks out the sound of silence and the silence of true sound. So when we listen to the sounds around us, to the natural sounds, and that could be the natural sound of somebody speaking or a child crying, provided it's not too close to you, uh, that these natural sounds are, don't interrupt or break the silence. In some way they alert you to the uh, silence which is the, the womb of creation. Everything comes out of the Father in our image of the Trinity. The Father is this abyss of being whom no one has seen or can see who dwells in unapproachable light. So this unknowable, unmeasurable, un immeasurable uh, depth of being. And, um, but everything comes out of this including the Word, or the second person of the Trinity. And this is, these are co-eternal, they, they, one doesn't come before the other, so this is in the instant of God, in the moment of God, the eternal moment. But there is this uh, dynamic, uh, explosive um, generation from within the abyss of being, of that which expresses being. And the Word, the Son, who becomes flesh, but who is present wherever God is present, and where is God not present. So the Word is the expressiveness. We wouldn't, you know, the big, the big question of, for philosophers, 
uh, is always, why should anything exist at all? That's the basic question. So, but and everything that does exist, and it exists uh, because it has been uh, expressed uh, and projected, as it were, out of this abyss of being. So, so silence is the is the fertile womb of 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 creation of everything that has an existence, everything that shares in being. The word existence has the sense of X coming out of. So something that exists has come out of something. Being doesn't come out of anything. Being is primary. Being is the eternal abyss, uh, the great mystery. But existent things including ourselves, including the crying of a baby or the sound of the, of the birds. Everything comes out of this uh, being and therefore expresses it. So there is nothing in creation, nothing that exists, that in itself is bad or, uh, or profane. Everything is a sound of this eternal silence. So where does noise come from then? This is the big question, uh, you know, the, the, the beginning of the, of the Bible and uh, all of r religious myths and symbolism is preoccupied with. Where, where does sin come from? Where does the fall happen? How does sound become noise? How do we become distracted. So the desert uh, teachers were speaking about yesterday went into the desert, into the silence, to recover the sound of being. And they did this in, in, uh, while recognizing and knowing that they had to recognize the goodness of their own human nature. So they weren't doing harm to themselves or punishing themselves or hating the world or withdrawing completely from human contact. They didn't do that. That would, that would be a perversion of, of their quest, the human quest. So we have to, we make the quest for being uh, with our full humanity. And that is affirmed in the Christian vision by the Incarnation. That God enters into that quest by actually becoming human or present to us in the human person of Jesus. So, um, so where, where does distraction happen? Well, there's no simple answer to that. Where does evil happen? Where does the shadow fall? The mystery of, of, of darkness it remains a mystery. Um, but for the desert teachers, the fact that it was difficult for us to pay attention is 
the closest we can come to understanding what the fall means, what sin means. So often when they speak about distraction, it's as if this is the real meaning of original sin. And where and how it happened is another matter. Maybe we can't explain it in cause and effect terms. But the fact that we are noisy rather than listening joyfully to the sound of being, to the goodness of creation, that is something we have to confront in ourselves. And we confront it as soon as we go into the desert, as soon as we sit down to meditate. So the first level of the meaning of silence is that we learn to be comfortable with ourselves, to be at ease, to be friends with ourselves, to be at home with ourselves. That's the first level or the first degree of the work of silence. Now, although silence, as I was describing it in the mystical imagination, the mystical tradition, is this, this great abyss of being out of which everything comes. From the human point of view, as we recover or we aspire to wholeness and, he and health and healing and fullness of being, this is the human quest to, to become fully alive. So as we do that, we discover that silence is work. It says in the Upanishads, happy is the person who has found their work. Happy is the person who has found the work of silence. And happy indeed is the one who is who knows that work, that silence is work. And the cloud of unknowing speaks about the time of the work when he speaks about the times of meditation. St. Benedict refers to the times of prayer uh, in the monastery as opus dei, the work of God. And when we listen, to another person speaking to us and we give them our attention, we are working. That is, a, that is essential human work that no computer can yet or perhaps ever will be able to replicate. Um, I think a lot of uh, some, some firms now, uh, you know, hire uh, therapists or counselors uh, who work online uh, with their staff to do with stress or depression or other issues. And, you know, they chat online and that may be very helpful. But I don't think there's ever going to be a computer that would do that for us. You may come close to it. Did you, if you saw the film Her, is it, what was it called? Her? It's about this man who, who falls in love with a computer program uh, 
who's called her, and uh, they have great intimacy um, in their relationship. And he becomes totally absorbed with her. And, um, but I forget the whole, the whole story now, but in the end, um, he begins to get a little, you know, possessive of her. Uh, so he says to her, how many other people do you have using you as a program? And she says, her, says to him, you don't want to know. <laughs> and he says, yes, I do. So she, she says, okay, it's 35,274,000. 602 or something. So, I think uh, and that was his moment of awakening. You know? So I think, uh, I think no, no computer is, it, it, it can give us consolation or relief or distraction, but it, it cannot give that quality of attention which only the human being, flesh and blood, can do. And this attention is not something that can be programmed because it has to be, it's something faithful. It has to be not just efficient, but faithful. And it's, it's hard work to sustain your fidelity and your listening perhaps to someone and you're, you've got your own problems or you're tired or whatever. It's difficult or when the other person is, is uh, difficult to be with, it is uh, hard work sometimes to maintain that quality of attention. And of course, it, it's exactly the same work in a, in a sense that we do in meditation. Saying the mantra is the work of attention. And it, with time we come to understand what, it, what this work means and the fruits of this work in terms of relationship and of being first of all at home with ourselves. So silence we can say is the work is the fruit of the work of attention. A computer can go on standby but it can't be silent. When we learn to listen, we learn to do this work of silence. Listening is the act of attention. It may be easy or difficult, depending on what you're listening to, or who you're listening to, or what mood you are in. And you may say, I only want to listen to things that I like, or I only want to listen when I've got nothing else to do. So we might say that about meditation. I don't want to think of listening as a discipline. Well, uh, that's okay, but then I think it will inevitably take one longer 
to develop this muscle of attention, which has to develop uh, naturally and over time, and like everything else in life, at a human level, through, uh, through discipline. And as that muscle of attention develops, as our ability to listen deepens, as we become more familiar with the, the meaning of silence, then we can accept the sounds of silence. And they no longer become noise. Ultimately, there would be no more noise if we were able to be truly silent. Our own self-alienation, our distractedness, it's this that increases noise. It's this that makes even beautiful sounds noisy. And noise, the leaf blowers, uh, noisier. Because we can't see the difference. When we're in this state of self-alienation, of distraction, the primary sin, then we just can't see the difference between sound and noise. So everything ultimately becomes noisy. Good little test of this is when you're meditating and if you're in a very you could and, and then there's an external noise. Okay. Somebody makes an unnecessary noise or somebody turns on the car, you know, a noisy car goes by outside, then the effect of that external noise on you is going to show you where you were in your meditation at that moment. So if you say, God, I wish they didn't do that again, and you're filled with anger, and for that moment you could just blast away the cause of that noise, uh, it, it almost certainly, yeah, certainly shows that you were in a state of distraction when it happened. If you were in a state of deep listening, if you were really silent when that distraction, that noise, external noise occurred, you would, it, it wouldn't make such an impact on you. And even if it made you feel a bit irritated, uh, it wouldn't disturb the quality of silence that you were in. So, we can also then learn to appreciate the sound of silence. And we begin to sense that whether the universal silence of being, and being is everywhere, is everything, that the universal silence of being is communicating something to us. Even when there is noise blocking our ability to be aware of the silence, internal noise or external noise, or whether it's the natural sounds of silence or emerging out of silence, doesn't matter. 
If we are immersed in silence to some degree, we begin to sense a familiarity, an intimacy with, one, with ourselves that arises directly from the silence. And this suggests to us that it is a self-communicating reality. What silence is communicating to us is silence. It is itself. It's not a medium for either for for noise or for or for sound. It is communicating itself. There is nothing so much like God as silence, Meister Eckhart says. And although that might sound a little abstract or um, difficult to imagine, it's really very simple. God is infinitely simple, Augustine says. So this is, I think, uh, it's, it's, obviously it's obviously impossible to define. Maybe haikus uh, express it and great mystical literature expresses it through poetry and so on. But really, it's not difficult for us to taste. We just have to begin the work of silence by learning to listen and to trust the goodness of that experience and come back to it as regularly, as often, as we want, as we can. And of course, like everything, uh, it, it grows with us and we come to love the silence. We come to love the work of silence, not because anybody is telling us we should do it or you should meditate. One of the worst things I think a husband or a wife can say to their spouse is you should meditate. Um, and similarly with children. Because once the experience has been tasted, it will inevitably become more and more attractive. <laughs>